1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
3: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board.
2: This is Uncanny USA.
4: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. (laughs) Listen
2: to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
0: You know you've got a comeback in you.
3: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the show where America is the star and the American people. Brett San Pietro has served in multiple branches of our military, as well as in the State Department. Following his time of service, Brett served as Director of Operations with Team Red, White, and Blue, or Team RWB, a nonprofit that seeks to create community among our veteran population and encourage health and wellness. Here's Brett to share his story.
5: I've been incredibly fortunate to serve uh, in the Army and in the Navy as an active duty service member in the Reserves, in the National Guard, and also in a civilian capacity with the State Department. And kind of all of that it involves a lot of kind of hopping around on, on the resume, really. Uh, and for me, like where it all started was I, I grew up in a uh, metro Detroit area. My mom worked full-time, my dad was a truck driver, uh, and I got to see the whole country because I would spend the summers on the truck with my dad. Uh, and, and that was a fantastic experience, a fantastic way to like get to know the country and different parts of our country, different cultures. With mom and dad being gone all the time though, like after school activities are kind of a mandatory thing. And for me, since sports weren't a big thing in my family, there was a fellow member of the church who was also the lieutenant colonel in charge of the high school ROTC program. And boom, that's where Brett spent his time. And so I was enrolled in high school ROTC. And even though there's no record of service in my family, basically since World War II, uh, not a big military tradition family or anything like that, that's where I got my exposure. That's where I learned, you know, the basics of like marching and rank, but also like the basics of leadership, right? And you know, these these core values, honor, integrity, selfless service, things like that. When I graduated high school, uh, I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to go to college for acting. And there was just no money in the family. And also like not a lot of let's say like family experience with sending kids to college, right? And figuring out how to get the money and stuff like that. Uh, and so I figured I would work really hard and save up a lot of money. Uh, and I did for about a year. Uh, I, it was as cell phones were coming out and I was selling cell phones and I made a lot of money and I spent all that money. And after a year I was like, yeah, something drastic needs to change. And I go to, uh, I go to the store with my buddy one day to get some stuff for working on the car and there's a recruiting center next door. And I just tell him like, hey, I'll, I'll catch up to you in a few. I'm gonna dip in here for a minute. I think I was like 96, maybe 102 pounds at the time. Uh, so let's say 100 pound, five foot 10, Brett walks into the recruiting center and says like, hey, sign me up. I wanna join the army. I wanna, I wanna know like how I can get some of that sweet, sweet college money. So that was the thing, that was the hook, the college money, right? And the recruiter's like, what do you wanna do? And I was like, well, if I'm gonna make a drastic change in my life, let's go all in. So like, sign me up for Airborne Ranger Regiment. Like, I'm, I'm gonna do this 100%. <laughs> and, and that's when I joined. I get down to Fort Benning, home of the infantry. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but you know, when you look at uh, Arlington National Cemetery, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, funerals, all of that's done by a unit called the Old Guard, oldest active serving infantry regiment in the Army. They have a recruiter who hangs out down at Fort Benning and basically just grabs kids. He sizes them up based on like scores on paper and also just how they look, and he talks to drill sergeants during basic and all of that. And he just grabs you and he's like, hey, you know, what'd you sign up for? Where are you going? And you tell him, like, hey, Airborne Ranger Regiment. He goes, yeah, not so much anymore. Here's a quarter, call your mom. You're going to the Old Guard. It's a non-deployable unit. She'll be thrilled. And, and that's it. Like, you, you don't tell, you're a, you're a brand new private. You don't tell a sergeant something different. So all of a sudden the path changes and I go to DC. And that's how I ended up in DC for 9-11. And like so many people out there, right? Like that's my pivot moment. That's where, you know, life changes. That's where the path for our whole country changed. And so I am assigned to the old guard. I'm in Washington, D.C. Planes hit the towers, planes hit the Pentagon, and we respond to the crash at the Pentagon. You know, there's a whole wash of emotions there, but you don't realize until now, looking back, how much that just changed everything. And not just for the country, but specifically for me. So. We respond on 9-11, and then a couple months later, life goes back to kind of this like pseudo-normal phase. But we're the old guard, and we're technically a non-deployable unit, and we're watching the whole rest of the Army, the Marines, the Navy, everyone deploy and go overseas. And to be honest, we are quite a bit salty about it. Until uh, one day in late 2003, a three-star from the Pentagon, Lieutenant General Cody, actually, I think it was, shows up, he goes, hey, we're deploying a company of old guard soldiers, just about 100 of you. And that was how I like, experienced my combat deployment with the Army. Uh, I didn't go to Afghanistan. We didn't go to Iraq. We actually went to the Horn of Africa and bounced around in a special operations support type of capacity.
3: And we're listening to Brett San Pietro tell his own story about life in the military and what led him to it, which was, as he said, some of that free college money. But while he was at it, he thought, why not go all in? And so, of course, he was thinking, Airborne Ranger Regiment. But then again, in comes a sergeant to slightly, uh, let's just say, change his mind. Of course, he didn't change his mind. The sergeant just Changed his mind for him, and the next thing you know there he is in Arlington, at Arlington National Cemetery, a part of the Old Guard, one of the great jobs there is in all of the military. Until, of course, well, our men and women are asked to serve our country in battle. And then, as he said it, a lot of us got salty. We wanted to serve. When we come back more of this remarkable story, Brett San Pietro's story here on our American Stories. back with Our American Stories and the story of Brett San Pietro. When we last heard from Brett, he was bouncing around the Horn of Africa with his Special Forces Unit after being stationed just outside of Washington, D.C. during what he called a pivot point in his life and many of our lives, 9-11. Back to Brett.
5: We did that for about a year and then many of us, myself included, extended just to make that happen. Uh, and so when we got back, we got out. And then it was like, hey, what comes next? And for me, like I just immediately pivoted back to the plan, right? Hey, uh, what was it gonna be again? Oh, that's right, I wanna go to college, I wanna study acting. And, and it took until probably just like this year, uh, 11 years later for me to like reflect on this and realize that is such an obvious symptom of not having any time to process, right? I didn't I didn't take a beat to think, hey, what have I seen? Hey, what have I done? Has my view on society changed? Has what I want out of life changed? I was just like, you know, I'm an infantryman. Here's the plan. We're going to go do the plan. Uh, and I went to went to college in Chicago. Actually, didn't initially get in. Uh, my scores weren't high enough, <laughs> but uh, one of the administrators wrote me an email and said like, hey, your scores are below the threshold, but I noticed they're about four years old uh, and I noticed your email is a army.mil address. Is there anything you want to tell me? Like, have you been serving? Uh, and, I, and I gave him my kind of four-year resume and said, well, uh, so I'm happy to sign off on this if you're willing to come in and do an audition. And so the, the gist there is I basically got into college on an audition and the fact that I'd been in the army. Otherwise, my, I, I was a big slacker in high school Uh, my scores would not have gotten me into college. And once I was there, it was National Guard Service, still with the Army, and taking acting classes until a couple other kind of life changes happened, and I decided to switch from acting to political science. And around that time, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, do public defense, I'd had a family member who had had, you know, really bad running with the law and there was no money in the family. So that really kind of influenced my decision there. And just again, because of my military background, because of what I experienced with the Army and the fact that I was still serving and what I was doing in college, I was contacted by a recruiter for the State Department. And so they contact me and they're interested. And so I have to go through their whole application process, which takes a couple of years but simultaneously I'm trying to get my commission with the National Guard. And when I graduate, uh, I almost simultaneously get my commission into the U.S. Army National Guard in Illinois as an officer, but also an offer to come work at the State Department. And again, I I had fantastic mentors and leaders, and I had a colonel who was in charge of my ROTC unit, said, well, like, this is an an easy call. Like, you don't need to sweat this one. And uh, he called, you know, the two-star general running the state at the time, and explained the situation, and I kind of got traded like a baseball card from the Army to the State Department. They signed this conditional release, and I got put into the reserves, and working with the State Department, I went back overseas, back to the Horn of Africa, uh, worked there for a couple of years, worked in Pakistan for a period of time. At that point, the Army kind of said like, hey, you're you're clearly not going to have time to drill with us anymore. Uh, Here's an honorable discharge. We send it to your parents' house. Uh, And I didn't find out about it until like six months later. And I had this whole like identity crisis thing happen, right? Because even though I hadn't even drilled in almost a year, I still identified as an army service member. And I'm living over in Pakistan trying to figure out like, hey, I'm coming back to DC for my next tour. Can I get back into drilling? And I'm told like, oh, hey, you're, you're out. You actually, we honorably discharged you. So don't worry about it. And I remember coming into work the next day and talking to my boss. I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore. So I come back to DC and I'm still working with the State Department. And in my time in DC, I I managed to be in a position where I'm briefing a lot of kind of like decision makers and doing stuff with the military, even a civilian capacity. And someone suggests that I go for a direct commission with the Navy. And I mentioned that absolutely all of my army friends will give me endless trash about that. But sure, why not? That sounds fun. Uh, and, then, and then I did, and the Navy was kind enough to, to hook me up and bring me on board as a, a reserve intel officer. And that takes us kind of all the way up to the time where I found Team RWB. Uh, and so, so I managed to kind of hop around between the Army and the Navy, the active and the enlisted side. I did some work with the State Department. My friends all jokingly refer to it as having like career ADHD, which is a very real problem for people. So it's not really a joking matter. Uh, but at the same time, I think they ha- they got something right there. Like identity is a really big thing in the armed forces and in the veteran population. And it took like coming up to this endpoint and then finding team red, white, and blue. And again, being exposed to other people who've been through similar scenarios and are struggling with identity and transition and just their physical and mental health to realize that I've just been go, go, go nonstop for a decade, a decade and a half of government service. And I never stopped to think about like who I am in that space and how it's impacting me, things like that. So that takes us all the way up to the time that I found and joined Team RWB in 2019. Everyone encounters team red, white, and blue in a different way, right? And and that's like the biggest question I have for people when I meet them out at events, like, how'd you hear about this? Why is this important to you? Why are you here? Right? For me, I knew about team RWB kind of like on the periphery, right, for, for a number of years, bouncing in and out of DC, living overseas. Every now and then I heard about it, I was always paying attention to kind of the Wounded Warrior Project and Team Rubicon and veteran service spaces. But probably more importantly, in hindsight, I had veteran buddies who were, you know, like living in the States full time, right? Or who had, you know, gone to West Point after finishing our enlistment together. And they were the ones every now and then when we'd talk about, you know, where do you want to go? Who do you want to work with? Where do you want to volunteer? Team RWE just always had this kind of A reverent reverent tone around it when people were referring to it, right? Like, hey, that's that's an organization that's got it right. I really like what they're doing there. And I didn't actually latch on to and find in-person experiences with Team RWB until like the 2018-2019 timeframe. And it wasn't until I came to work for them that I really better understood my interaction there. The whole organization started back in 2010. And uh, we, we, we go out of our way to make sure people understand that we're here for all sorts of health and fitness and all sorts of social connection for veterans, uh, regardless of how we do that. Uh, and, and the running joke is we don't just run, right? Because that's, that's, that's what a lot of people do. We started at a marathon in Minneapolis back in 2010 the founder, Mike Irwin, was like, hey, let's get let's see if we can get 75 people together to, to do a marathon and to fundraise for a veteran nonprofit, and we're gonna carry a flag too. And we're 11 years later now, and that is hands down the thing that has carried on is like the through line. It's just wherever you go, you see TMRWB people, and if it's a run, they're out there running and someone's carrying the flag. And they've got two, five, maybe 10 people surrounding them and supporting them.
3: And you're listening to Brett San Pietro tell the story of his life's journey through the military. And then having learned he was honorably discharged, what a strange way to find out. Uh, He loses his identity. And I've had dear friends, and one in particular who wouldn't mind me sharing his name, and that's Lieutenant Colonel Jim Shaver. And he'd been an Army Ranger and then was head of ROTC here at Oxford, Mississippi, at Ole Miss, then at the University of Alabama, and then finally when he retired, it was more than a typical retirement. It's like I'd been told where and what to do and how to do it my entire life. What next? My whole identity is wrapped up in this thing called the U.S. Army, and that was a good thing, but what happens after? When we return, more of this story, the story not only of Brett San Pietro, but so many of RGI's and so many of our seamen and airmen, and what happens after, here on Our American Stories. OAS today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash OAS. Betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash OAS. And we're back with Our American Stories and with Brett Pietro, and his story of Team Red, White and Blue, a veteran support organization who are most known for carrying an American flag during races across the country. A tradition that goes back to Team RWB's inception. Let's return to Brett.
5: Started out with that initial marathon and then the original idea was let's match up like kind of advocates, mentors, mentees, right? And let's let's see how we can help veterans in that way. There's a lot of organizations focusing on, you know, for example, wounded veterans. And that's necessary, right? There's an acute need there. But also there's an identification piece. Like not every veteran identifies or wants to identify as being wounded. And also there's plenty of veterans out there who want to help other veterans and be part of something, but you know, they don't identify as needing that acute care. And one one of the things we found back then, and I say we, this is long before I joined the organization, there's a lot more people raising their hands to help than raising their hands saying, hey, I need some help. We were kind of trending into this space of like, are we starting to do social work here? And is that really where our core competency is? Is that what, what we want to be doing and what we have? Couple of years working with that, kind of trying to build the organization while simultaneously figure out exactly what we are and and what's that structure look like. Team RWB got to a point where we had over a thousand volunteers across the country doing things, runs, hikes, taking people out to social events, getting together with veterans and their family, introducing veterans who just moved to the community, to a community that can support them. We had over a thousand veterans in almost 200, communities across the country, just doing this stuff almost on their own, like with very little top-down organizational support. And that's, I think, really where the first concrete version of Team RWB came came to exist, probably right around the 2013 to 2015 timeframe. And it was connecting with veterans, physical and social activity, especially transitioning veterans and like connecting them to their communities. You had a lot of veteran groups that were specifically for veterans and Team RWB has always been fully inclusive. It's hard to connect a veteran to their community if you're keeping the community at arm's reach. Uh, and, And that has now grown and morphed just in these last couple of years. Especially with COVID, And with the drawdown of operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, and also talking to veterans about what they actually need and what communities need. And now the focus isn't solely on that transitioning veteran, but also, you know, kind of settling in for the long haul, right? What do veterans need, not just when they get out of service, but five years, 15 years, 25 years later? Uh, And it really comes down to, like, it's a lot of layers and lots of kind of cause and effect. But when you drill all the way down, you can find most of the, you know, most of the problems you want to solve. If you keep asking, like, well, what's the root? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? Team RWB is becoming about the physical and mental health and wellness of the veteran population in America. And how can we keep veterans connected? How can we keep them physically and mentally healthy in a way that, you know, let's focus on prevention and let's focus on just generally being healthy, right? Like you can spend $5 on prevention, or you can spend $500 on acute care down the road. And that's what Team RWB's involved evolved into over the last 11 years. And we've gotten there through the help, not only of thousands of volunteers over that time. Uh, It's worth pointing out, we have less than 35 paid staff members on the organization and about a quarter of a million members. So we rely super heavily on volunteers. Uh, So we've gotten there not only through the help of volunteers, but also amazing mentors and partners and colleagues in the space working together with organizations like Wounded Warrior Project and The Mission Continues, uh, having fantastic corporate sponsors and partners like, like Yinling has been for us for a number of years, and, and, and also being able to hear from those volunteers and from those sponsors and partners about like, what they think the veteran space needs or quite literally what the veterans they know are asking for. Uh, and that's been super helpful for us as we continue to transition and evolve. So the communities piece is huge. And something we've been talking about for a few years now is uh, you know, like anytime we talk about communities, there's a question you gotta ask at the top of the conversation. Are we talking community with a small C or community with a big C? And, and that's where our thinking is in these last couple of years, basically since 2019, 2020. Uh, when we talk about communities, plural, communities with a small c, San Diego, New York, Columbia, Missouri, Ann Arbor, Michigan, like those are places where these volunteers with some financial support from us, sure, and a little bit of organizational support have really made things happen for themselves and for the veterans in their communities. And the things they're doing Whether it's hosting a hike, hosting a run, um, hosting a specifically family-friendly event because more and more veterans, they have kids, right? And it's like, hey, I'd love to come out to this thing, but I need a solution for my nine-year-old and my 14-year-old. And those are the kind of things that they're doing in their communities, and they're building those bonds between groups of five, 10, maybe even up to 20 individual veterans and supporters. And then what we're trying to start building and layering on top of that, kind of this community with a big C, is how do we make sure that all of those veterans and all of those individual communities know that, and and feel, like genuinely feel, that they are a part of something larger. That, you know, the, the best example I can give is when I was moving from Boston to Chicago, the Boston chapter of Team RWB barely, like I had just met them, and you know, when they found out I was moving, the chapter captain just says like, hey, when are you moving? We can get some people over to help you move. The Army understands the Air Force, the Marines, the Navy, even in civilian government service, you know what it means to have to move from one city to another and have to do so frequently. The Team RWB model that I like to point to is you should be able to send a message to someone in Tulsa, Oklahoma and say like, Hey, I'm moving there in a month or two. Uh, Can you help me out? And that person has a ready-made community for you to tap into. Uh, And so that's what we're trying to take it, you know, from those individual small C communities, up to making sure everyone knows and feels they're part of something larger. And we're probably never going to have some massive convention of thousands of veterans in one space. But if across each calendar year, we can have eight or 10 different opportunities to bring 20 or 50 veterans together from communities all across the country, those people start connecting with each other and they're not just there for three days of conferences and going out to the bar at night. These people are hiking the Smokies, they're backpacking, they're running in the Grand Canyon, they're canoeing in the Boundary Waters, they're going up to Alaska, they're having actual like Difficult bonding experiences. And so the goal there is to start building up that big C even more and more, just making sure everyone feels and knows that they're part of something larger again.
3: And a great job on the production by Robbie Davis. And a special thanks to Brett San Pietro for sharing his story. He served as director of operations with Team Red, White, and Blue. Also a shout out to Yingling, America's Oldest Brewery, for assistance on the story. And this is just another classic about how Americans voluntarily help those in need, and in this particular instance, are returning soldiers, and how they not only transition, but how they have a good, rich, and wonderful life within their communities. The story of Brett San Pietro here on Our American Story.
2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
5: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
3: And we return to Our American Stories. In 1798, the Sedition Act was passed, part of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Here's Monty Montgomery with a story. It's the summer of 1798, our nation is
1: brand new, and our second president, John Adams, has just signed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Here's Dr. Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College with more on what that meant.
4: It's plural because there were four of them. There were two alien acts. One of them was called the Alien Enemies Acts, which gave the president basically unilateral power to remove adult males that were nationals of countries that we were currently at war with the other was known as just the alien act or sometimes the alien friends act it said that even without war a president could deport immigrants from another country if he thought that they posed some sort of threat or danger the third was the naturalization act which just extended how long someone that immigrated to the United States had to wait before applying for citizenship. It had been five years. This made it 14. And then finally, the uh, Sedition Act, which is actually the most famous of the group of acts, said that you could be prosecuted for saying a malicious or slanderous things about the Congress or the President of the United States or also if you were trying to go against the policy and positions of the United States broadly understood. But why were these acts passed? It turns out
1: it had a little bit to do with Adams himself and how our nation felt about two countries
4: across the Atlantic Ocean to really understand where he was coming from in doing so. Some people will attribute it to his personality. He tended to be a fairly prideful man, uh, uh, struggled with vanity, so maybe he didn't want to be criticized. But it, it was actually a lot more than that, even though you can't deny that that couldn't have played a part. You have to understand the broader context in America, and you have to understand the broader context in the world internationally, America was caught in a kind of geopolitical conflict between the two major powers of the time. And the two major powers, uh, if you remember the Cold War, sort of everyone gravitated, it seemed, toward either the United States or Russia. The equivalent or, or somewhat equivalent at that time was France and England. They were the two big geopolitical powers that faced off And American politics itself, domestically, in many ways, its first divide, the first formation of political parties, was based off of, should our international policy be more friendly to France, or should it be a little more friendly to Great Britain? And much of the policy that France and Great Britain had toward us was depending upon whether we were being friendly to them. And so what starts to happen is the Federalist Party that John Adams was a part of thought that England was a better idea. The other party that was founded by Thomas Jefferson who had lost to Adams in 1796 said that we need to be more friendly to France because the Federalists are in charge When the French Revolution happens, they go and start to make treaties with Great Britain. They stop paying debts to the new French government, saying they owed it to the old king of France, not this new revolutionary government. And what they end up doing is siding with England over France. This not only enrages the Jeffersonians, it enrages France. When Adams takes over, something that starts up is what's called the Quasi-War where we got into a conflict with France that was never declared, but involved a lot of French privateers taking out our shipping, all in reaction to the fact that the France thought we were not keeping up our obligations to them and we're going too much for Great Britain. As tensions heat up with France, the Federalists get more and more worried not only about immigrants that might be from France or like-minded countries, but they get really nervous about How loyal and how on America's side are the Jeffersonians? Are they going to be too pro-French? Are they going to subvert the American Republic? And so what they end up doing is implementing first the immigration restrictions and then the Sedition Acts themselves, I think partly out of fear for the stability of government, fear of foreign influence, and worry that the, the international scene and the power of France in particular was going to undermine our own system and our own politics.
1: The reaction to these laws was fast and negative, at least on the opposite side of the political debate. And two founding fathers, one the sitting vice president at the time, penned two political statements in response to it that were so controversial George Washington said, if systematically pursued,
4: they would dissolve the union or produce coercion. The two most famous documents that come out of this are the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. They were passed by the state legislatures of those two commonwealths. Partly they're famous because Jefferson ghostwrote the Kentucky Resolution, James Madison co-wrote the Virginia Resolution. And that's one of the arguments among several others that they make, that this violates the right to free speech, that basically would be used and was used to punish dissenting opinion and freedom of the press. The reason Washington said
1: these statements could potentially dissolve the Union? Well, that was because they also called for states to nullify or not follow federal law that they saw as contrary to the Constitution. But if you're wondering who some of these people who were prosecuted under the Sedition Act were, here's some examples of rather colorful commentary that got politicians and journalists alike arrested in the late 1700s. Matthew Lyon, a sitting congressman from Vermont who would later become famous for attacking another congressman with a fire poker on the floor of the House, wrote that the Adams administration was marred by ridiculous pomp and selfish avarice. And Luther Baldwin was indicted, convicted, and fined $100 for a drunken incident that occurred during a visit by President Adams to Newark, New Jersey. Upon hearing a gun report
4: during a parade for Adams, he yelled, I hope it hits Adams in the butt. You know, you, you look at what was said, and it really wouldn't strike us as anything that we wouldn't see on Twitter or on a blog today, and really wouldn't come to the level that even outrages us now, as far as, as discourse. It really was fairly standard, even if Vitrolic at times, critiques of the president and Congress, and they didn't make it very far in the courts. The Jeffersonians, that is. Because they didn't try to take these
1: laws down in them. Instead, they simply waited until 1800,
4: an election year. The main opponents to these laws really fought the battle out in the uh, court of public opinion in elections, in state legislatures. It ended up being pretty disastrous for the Federalist Party. As the reality of these acts settled in, especially the Sedition Act, I think it really undermined them. It helped Jefferson to eke out a fairly narrow victory in 1800. but to gain a huge win in Congress. Congress, the Federalist Party, really got decimated in 1800, and I think it's partly as a reaction to this. And what then ended up happening was, not only did the Federalists lose the 1800 election, They really ceased after that election to be a viable national party. They limped along for another 12 years or so, but they never came close to winning the White House again. They never really came close to winning the House or Senate. They really became a regional party without much power. And as expected, the Sedition Act was allowed to expire when
1: Jefferson took office, followed by the Alien Friends Act. But that doesn't mean All of the acts
4: were destroyed by the Jeffersonians. The one that is still around that's interesting is a version of the Alien Enemies Act remains, which, again, is the law that says that if we are at war with a country, nationals from that country can be deported basically unilaterally. And this was even used by the FDR administration during World War II. And this is distinct from the internment camps that are infamous now in American history, this was actually used on a variety of nationals um, to uh, deport them during World War II. So not only did it re- that one remain on the books, slightly modified, uh, it was actually used as late as the 20th century.
1: But if there's one thing that the
4: Alien and Sedition Acts and their failure made clear, it's that our own rights are important. The right to f- speak and write freely is central to a popular government's ability to peacefully adjudicate disputes between each other rather than either having a tyranny or having uh, a bloodshed that, 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 that you protect speech to protect peace and to protect the free flow of ideas.
3: And great job as always to Monty and thanks as always to Hillsdale College for all they do. The story of the Alien and Sedition Acts here on Our American Story. Dot com, that's better, h-e-l-p dot com.